Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Design is Not Neutral. Today's guest will be Nika Fisher. Nika is a Serbian-born, American-raised graphic designer, writer, and educator based in New York. Her written work explores how design and identity overlap and highlights underreported voices in internet and design history. Her words have appeared in publications including the New York Times and AIGA Eye on Design. In 2018, she co-founded Labud, a design studio specializing in strategy, branding, and web design for clients across fashion, art, and tech. She is an assistant professor of communication design at Parsons School of Design and has previously taught at the University of Pennsylvania and Rutgers University. Nico holds a master's degree from Columbia University's Journalism School and a BFA in communication design from Parsons School of Design. Join me in welcoming Nika today. Thank you. Hey Grace, how's it going? Hey, good, how are you? Doing well, thanks for asking. Okay, so I think we'll just kind of start. I think the first question that I wanted to ask you, which I feel like I maybe didn't ask last time, was um, how you got interested in design to begin with and how you got started yourself in the field. Sure. Um, So I think I first became aware of design um, because I was born in a country that doesn't exist anymore. So I was born in Yugoslavia in um, 1991. And um, in my lifetime, it changed names several times. So it was uh, Yugoslavia, Serbia and Montenegro, Serbia, um, and and like the, and then now it's just Serbia. But like throughout my, my growing up, it was always a little bit confusing because my passport would sort of always said Yugoslavia, but then um, at airports when I was traveling and they were typing in the country and the computer, it would like not register. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of an interesting way of talking about design because it's the design of a country and specifically how the country is named, um, which is really fueled by a lot of political and social decisions. But um, like seeing it on the interface in the computer at the airport was an interesting moment where it was almost like you're being told you don't exist or the country you comes from doesn't exist, even though, you know, in fact, that it does. So there's a lot of layers in those types of decisions um, and how sort of I remember my heritage. And I think, too, because I I left Yugoslavia during the war and came to Los Angeles um, when I was a toddler. So I definitely identify with being American, grew up in America, but um, at home, I would speak a different language. I spoke Serbo-Croatian at home, my family, and I continued to do that. And I was always sort of told that like Yugoslavia was our home. And Mm -hmm. I think that kind of dichotomy of hearing something and being told that this is, you know, your culture, but not sort of having um, like a direct relationship with it that felt my own was really perplexing. And I guess more specifically to answer your question, when I went to Parsons, that was when I really was being asked to think for myself and draw from my own lived experience. And I think I had a pretty naive view of what graphic design was when I chose to do that program. Um, you know, I, I just I knew I liked working with computers and I thought that there would be a lot of career options, I guess. Like that's why I chose it. It wasn't very deep, but I ended up having a very profound interest in graphic design and specifically communication design because um like I would take these classes I took a class um called core interaction which was a web design class 
And the instructor would sort of give us these open-ended prompts to respond to. And we were really using the, um, the web page as a model for self-expression and being able to publish our own ideas and have them freely exist. And that was really liberating for me. It felt like that was one of the first times I'd really been asked to kind of think for myself and and to be confident about what I was saying. Yeah. And did you always know kind of like, oh, I want to go to Parsons? Like I, like, had you kind of heard about that as a design school growing up? That's a great question. Um, So growing up, um, no, I didn't, neither of my parents went to university and I think they really wanted my brother and me to go to university, but I think the sort of the advice they had was not really rooted in um, like specifics about what you would study perhaps. And so um, like we lived in in the Bay Area and so I know that my parents really wanted me to go to Berkeley because that was very close <laughs> and like to live at home and sort yeah. of what I could study was not as like that wasn't really um, as big of a conversation Mm -hmm. and so I don't feel like I really knew about what university could do for me other than give me a job and also that there were like these great state schools in California Um, I did not get into Berkeley Um, I was not the best student in high school and um, I did end up getting into UC Santa Cruz Mm. which um, is the home of the banana slugs. <laughs> My brother went there, actually. Really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. What did he yeah. study? Computer science. Very cool. Like, yeah. it's a beautiful campus. Yeah. Um, but the school for me at the time was very overwhelming. It's a very large school. Mm-hmm. And for someone who is sort of ambivalent and not didn't have a clear understanding of what to do, I felt like I got very lost in the cracks. And even though I, I studied some interesting subjects, like I took a Chinese ethnographies class, um, I took a dramatic literature class. Um, I just didn't feel like I was very focused and mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I was really making the most of my education. So um, I actually ended up dropping out after a year. Mm-hmm. And I was really sort of exploring what would feel good to me to pursue and at the advice of my therapist, actually, um, I decided to apply for a illustration program for just a summer um, because that was just one of the things that I knew I in- like um, intuitively knew I enjoyed doing. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I ended up I was fortunate enough to be able to go to Parsons for a summer. And it really changed my whole perspective on both education and what you could do professionally. Um, the summer program was um, illustration, as I mentioned, and it was for adults. And I was 19, but everybody else was like a little bit older. Um, Some people were in their mid twenties, some people were in their forties and were doing this sort of recreationally. Um, The instructor was this wonderful um, Italian illustrator and children's book illustrator. And it was such a nurturing community of not only working on craft, but like what you're communicating with the images you're making. And it really felt like there was a dialogue. And because the class size was so small, I felt sort of stimulated and encouraged to voice my thoughts and experiment with new models of communication. And um, yeah, I just had never seen that before. I didn't really know what a like a design job might look like. And mm-hmm. I guess being in that environment, I saw that there were a lot of options. Maybe I didn't have the vocabulary for what they were, but it seemed like 
you know, you, you could do something creative. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know, I kind of trusted my gut and I applied to Parsons and um, got in. And, and that was one of the best decisions I've made in my life, I think. That's great. Um, yeah, I think my next question is kind of like going off of that classroom model. Like, is that something that you now having that experience or that initial experience in a design or an art classroom? Um, do you try to replicate that in your own classes now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really think it's such a luxury to be able to go to school at all, but specifically um, a design school. Um, because even though I think design is important, um, not everybody has access to it or has the vocabulary to to talk about it. Um, and so I think it's a real privilege. Um, and that being said, I think a lot of people go into communication design or graphic design because they think they can be product designers, which of course you can be. But I think the real gift of studying design formally is learning to communicate and be specific about what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of develop your own interests and find different forms for that. So, you know, in all of my classes, I think we talk about learning to critique something and sort of taking a step back from your bias and looking at what something is creating and almost looking at things in like an anthropological study in a sense, like who created it? When was it created? How was it created? And asking those questions that are sort of removed from being like, oh, this is really refined, I like it, or, you know, like uh, kind of having those kind of value judgments. That's really interesting. So how do you, how do you set up for critique for people that are first students that have not had critique before? How do you kind of explain, okay, this is how I'm going to, um, or this is how we're going to talk about work, essentially, or how you're going to talk about work? Because I do feel like a lot of, um, critiques sometimes fall, especially first critiques in those intra-level courses fall into this trap of like, oh, I really like this. And then there's no after. Um, So I just wondered how you kind of. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's totally valid to look at something and have um, a judgment whether or not it resonates with you. Mm -hmm. But I encourage all of my students to kind of put that immediate reaction aside and I have kind of this process that I introduce, and I didn't come up with it. I think a lot of different um, art practices use it. Um, but I believe I first heard of it at the School for Poetic Computations Learning to Teach seminar. And the steps are describe, analyze, interpret, and evaluate. Mm-hmm. And I won't go into what they all do, but they start with just like very much looking at something literally and describing what it is that you're seeing without a judgment. So for example, um, seeing a lot of windows or seeing a lot of, um, you know, text or something is a non-value-based judgment. Whereas I'm seeing a lot of windows or, or dots or whatever, and it's making me feel confused. Like that, that would be a down the line, but you would start with something that's much more flat and mm-hmm. sort of build on that. And at the end, you would be asking questions of what the designer's intentions were or, um, you know, if in, in a critique where the, the designer is present, or if not, like, if you can do a little bit of research, like, when was it created? For what audience? Um, how was it created? And having those types of questions sort of direct the narrative. And then I usually share a couple examples. And I think the two sort of classic ones that I've used for a long time are Craigslist, 
um, and the Yale School of Art website, just because people tend reactions to those two sites. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I think they make a great, great ones to discuss. Yeah. So going off that, I know you had, I remember we talked about the Craigslist example before, but um, I think shifting to like talking about how UX design has now become kind of like a very, a space that's very monotonous in a way. Um, can you talk a little bit about the the Craigslist example and how you kind of bring that up in your class to show, um, I, I can't remember what exactly you're demonstrating, but <laughs> to show an example of like very effective design. Yeah. So um, yeah, so Craigslist, a lot of people see it and they think it looks um, bad um, or undesigned um, or they dislike it for whatever reason or it looks old. Um, and so I think those are fine to start with, but then about why does it look like that and what its purpose is. So um, I believe it was created in 1996, but definitely the 90s. And um, so then knowing that and thinking about how its form has evolved since then. And like, isn't it interesting that it hasn't really evolved since then? So there's something sort of timeless about this type of design language. And it's very um, accessible and read only in a lot of ways because it's using um, the technology of that time period, um, which is a little bit more stripped down, I guess you could say HTML. Um, but the fact that it has such a, it's, it's so, um, it's existed for so long in kind of the same format you know, I think that that's really curious because if it had a lot of special effects or images and things like that might break or might lose quality or, you know, our processes might change. But this kind of stripped down model in, in a way is very pure. Um, and then also thinking about how it was initially created to not have advertising um, on it and to be really like a community space where people could literally share, you know, their listings and, um like to expose that. And if you think about it that way, I think it would be difficult to say that it doesn't do that. Like, I think, you know, that's the entire content of the site and all of the design mirrors that philosophy. So, um, yeah, so I think those are some of the kind of insights that come from looking at Craigslist in particular. Um, you know, the fact that it was built to be advertisement free, it is built to be sort of like a community site. Um, and the fact that it's listed and its form, it's um, preserved, its form has preserved for so many years. Um, those are all things that are curious to me about the design language of that site. Yeah, and I think, I mean, yeah, people still use it all the time today. People use it for my boyfriend's using it right now to look for apartments, which is like wild because I was doing that when I was in college, and it just it hasn't changed at all since then. Uh, yeah, I. And it feels very like accessible to everyone because it is a free site um, versus, you know, other real estate, just think about real estate specifically, like other real estate sites, you have to pay or you have to have a broker. Or, like there's other steps that you might need to take, whereas Craigslist is just more open. It is. And I think also, as I like to kind of contextualize the history of an item, in this case, this website. And I think at that time, the internet was much more different. It was built on this idea of generosity and democracy. And I think that's a really interesting topic to bring into a design classroom because, you know, my my sophomore students right now, I think they're all born in 2003. Mm -hmm. um, so I think like, I don't know if I'm imagining that they were using the internet in a meaningful way when they're 10, 
that was 2013. So we had like web phones. We like the internet looked quite a bit different in 2013 to like 1996. And I think, you know, a lot of my students are not familiar with a more stripped down um, interface on their desktop or on their, um, yeah, their computers. And um, it manifests itself in, in them maybe not being able to find files on their computer as easily or understanding that each item on their computer has a location. Mm-hmm. And I, like for me, that was interesting just to kind of know where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, but for them, it's like this this um, knowledge that they just, you know, they just weren't around to see that firsthand. So it makes sense that they wouldn't know, know that. And so I think it's an interesting talking point. That's very interesting. I didn't even think about that because I do, sometimes I look at my students and I'm like, you grew up with the internet. Why are you struggling with like creating folders on your desktop and like organizing (laughs) things? Like it's confusing to me, but that's a really good point. Um, Yeah, I I didn't think about that. And going off of that, do you have situations um, in your classroom where there is kind of like a gap in technology for some students, whether they like maybe didn't grow up with it as much or um, some students come in and they have much more experience with technology than other students. I don't know if you've ever had that situation, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but is there any way you work with that? Well, I start all of my classes understanding that most students perhaps don't have the knowledge that I have certainly. So I I just start from a place where it's very foundational. Mm -hmm. And I think even if you are someone who has a lot of experience, relearning the basics can help, you know, highlight metaphors or highlight other models of making that maybe, you know, you've, you've become accustomed to, but didn't really think about. So, I mean, to answer your question, yeah, probably, but it doesn't, I treat my classes all as though they're entry level, Got it. And I think that that just makes it a more equitable experience anyway. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so back to um, web design. So it's obviously changed a lot from, you know, the initial inception of it to where we're currently at in terms of the styles and things that we use. Um, and I wondered if you had any like insider thoughts on why it's become so similar across the board from website to website to website Um, instead of having this I was actually just looking at a book today that was like history of web design but it it ended it it was at Notre Dame so it ended in like 2003 or something Mm -hmm. and just like the variety of web design back then was um, so different than what we have now, you know, everything was super stylized and, um, now it seems that websites are very like clean sans serif, um, fonts. I just wondered if you had any like thoughts on that or how you kind of like talk to your class about that. If you teach, you know, a web design history section or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, it's a great observation. Um, definitely in the earlier years, it was more expressive, both with the language. I think the language was kind of directing people how to do something like sign my guest book or click here. Or, you, you know, there were just like instructions on how to participate on a site. And um, and then there were, it was a pretty new environment. So I think 
people were sort of making it up as they went along and mm -hmm. it was very playful like i remember like geocities and angel fire websites where like i don't know they would be like about dragon ball z or just like some specific interest and it would be wholeheartedly about that like the background would be tiled and have um an image or a gif and um that you know you could only use web safe fonts like times new roman and Arial, so people would embed images for text um that was more stylized and that became sort of the the vernacular the visual vernacular of that era and i think there are a lot of reasons why it has evolved um and some of them are um practical like for example using an image in place of text not ideal because then like, screen readers can't access them and if there's an issue with the image you know then we're missing that text and so we're missing that information so it um makes it so that it's less accessible and consistent and now we have web fonts of course so we, we don't need to do that um and then i think just just the sheer number of people being online and requiring um the the access to the internet changes things a lot um so i think there's something about that and then things become templatized because um people are requiring this for their day-to-day -day lives and so like in a lot of ways um backends um or like you know website generators like squarespace and things they make it a lot easier mm -hmm. to do that you don't need to have um knowledge and coding like you can just make it and uphold it and then you know it, it's um less of a a cost for a lot of people they can do it on their own and again it just i think more people and access kind of inspire a particular visual language um i think that those are kind of big ones and then i think people because that becomes so common um I think people sort of equate that commonality with being an only option sometimes. And mm -hmm. so then they kind of try to recreate that um, because they think that that's what's good design. And oftentimes it's because they just don't know how to do it on their own. So that they're kind of copying what exists and making that the kind of starting default. Um, but, but it's not really, it doesn't need to be like that. It just sort of becomes that way over time, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think the you know, having that as the default, do you see that with your students that come in that have now grown up in this era where that's all they've really seen in web design is the same kind of thing over and over? And how do you kind of like break them from that if they just come in with that understanding that it it kind of has to be this way? Yeah, absolutely. I think many of the students do. And I think many of them want to make that type of design language um, and uphold it. I think learning how to do that is effective, but I think it's, again, going back to why what you do in school of like finding your own perspective and interests and playing around with publishing your own thoughts um, and learning about how to contextualize history, that alone doesn't do that for me. Mm -hmm. So um, in the case of a web design class, I think having projects that are a little bit more open-ended and you can experiment with a web page as a sketch um, makes it sort of an, a low um, low barrier to entry. And then, you know, students can kind of play around with communicating an idea through a form. So mm -hmm. for example, in um, core interaction, which is the class I teach at Parsons um, in the first semester, it's like no one has coded before for the most part. 
And so this semester we're doing a project called a harmonic collection. And um, the idea is that they had to come up with a theme that they're going to explore visually for the course of the semester. And then each week they contribute one sketch to that theme. And mm. so to help everyone get started. I made like a little dummy website and mine was um, advice from CoStar, you know, the astrology app. Yeah. <laughs> so I took the like headlines that it gave me because they're very, I, I don't know, I find it very curious. They're very poetic and yeah. they're, they're generated with AI. Um, so like each week I would choose one of those and then, you know, with whatever we're like studying that day or that week, technically, whether it's typography or animation or, um, you know, hovering or scrolling or, you know, different, different kind of technical things. Um, I explore that with code and, and then I have some kind of content that's consistent. Mm. And so that's what the students are working on. And I think, you know, first thinking of an idea that that's specific enough to have some parameters around it, but open enough that you can kind of iterate on it each week is a good move. It's like kind of like a very fine art move. I think, you know, when you're in like a drawing class, you draw an egg or, you know, something like this. So it's kind of, yeah, like bringing in this kind of fine art thinking into um, a web design space. And then it's also sort of bringing in something journalistic and editorial too. Like what is the most interesting thing about your collection? How is it going to be consistent within the span of 15 weeks, but how is it also going to be interesting from, from week to week too? Like, are there things that all of the entries have in common? You're thinking of it as a system almost. Um, So, yeah. So I think it's a really good assignment so far. Yeah. I, I think that's interesting and also gives them more autonomy versus like, you need to make this website for a client, which they will then have to do for the rest of their life. So it's nice to make something more um, in what they're interested in or, or something that they're excited about. You're right. And even though it's like a different end result, I think the process can be very similar. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess going off of that, um, I am still interested in, do you talk to your students about the different, um, or do you think about in your own work as well? I'm sure you do, but um, accessibility in web design and it has changed over the course of like the last 10 years even, and that we need to make websites even more accessible than they were previously. And has that impacted the way that you work or the way that you teach? Um, just wondered. Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, something that I found really interesting related to this question is there is um, a a blind tech writer and activist, I believe she works at the New York Public Library. Uh, her name is Chansey Fleet. And mm-hmm. I saw um, a speech she gave um, a few years ago and she was talking about Siri and how um, everyone thinks Siri would be great for people with a range of disabilities or abilities but actually the normal speaking voice is very slow. Mm -hmm. And for someone who um, is visually impaired and is relying on audio controls as their primary way of communicating and navigating, it's not very efficient and it needs to be much quicker. And I think that there wasn't a way of speeding it up at the time of this talk. Um, And so that, that was really interesting to me because 
Um, I thought of like audio and speech to text as something that I always considered, but I hadn't really thought about that kind of pacing. And so that really made me realize that, you know, speaking to people who have um, abilities that range in capabilities from your own is really important in this discussion. And so I try to show that video and talk about it that way. I also remember a time um, maybe when I was first, like one of my first couple of years working where there were a lot of lawsuits. Like I was working at a fashion company and I was working as a web designer there and they had a really old website. They have since updated it and it's much better now in terms of accessibility. But at the time they had a website that was basically like a series of JPEGs and GIFs <laughs> that were huge. There was like hardly any live text. Like it yeah. was, you know, it was created a long time ago and it wasn't seen as a priority to, to update. Um, so it just kind of existed and the job was tricky because I knew these were bad practices to be uploading these like big JPEGs that were like, you know, low res and everything. And all the text and buttons were there. It just makes it for a lot of mistakes to happen in addition to being really inaccessible. And so they got sued while I was working there. And it was like this big trend at the moment of like a lot of, um, of, of sites that were um, commercial in nature being sued for accessibility. And then people started taking it a little bit more seriously. Yeah. I just think it's really sad that that was sort of the, the kind of set off for a lot of those companies to to think about that and um Benny what was I going to say is I think at that time there were kind of these like checklists of like what you should do to you know promote web accessibility and I think those checklists are good to know about and certainly to consider like having um accessible like contrast ratios like I use that all the time I show that to my students but I think it's sort of a conceptual flaw where maybe if you're thinking about access at the start of a project and thinking about who the audience is and how you can create something specific to them, you're going to have more options available visually than if you are just sticking to a set of parameters and, you know, just kind of trying to avoid a lawsuit. It shifts it both right. visually and visually, I think. That makes sense. And do you think some of the best practices, um, I guess, are able to be used on like a global scale or are a lot of them very specific to, I mean, I'm sure some of them are able to be used on a global scale, but do you think that some of them are very specific to how we read and understand things in um, like the US or in Europe, in like the Western world? Mm, um, yeah. Um, yeah, actually, going back to my my home country, Serbia. Um, so I profiled um, a, a Serbian type designer for AIGA on design about a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, her name is Olivera Stojadinovic. And she was really involved with digitizing the Cyrillic alphabet there, um, especially during the war in the 90s. And um, it's interesting because Serbia uses both um, the Latin text that looks familiar to us with a few different characters, and then the Cyrillic alphabet too. Mm -hmm. um, and they're equally um, part of the national identity to have these kind of dual languages uh, or dual alphabets, sorry. 
but um, the sort of internet was spreading during this time of war. So there wasn't a lot of advancement there for a long time. Like the technological support was a lot slower than in, in the US or the Western world. And so um, using English online became more common than using the Cyrillic or even the Serbian um, Latin text because those there weren't a lot of fonts that had those characters um, because it's not a it's not the same as the Russian Cyrillic it's specific to Serbia um, and and um, and people would do these things that there's something called um, Yuski character encoding so it's kind of like ASCII you've probably heard of that but like Y-U-S-C-I-I so that was like this hack essentially to replace common uh, or uncommon characters um, with the Serbian ones. So for mm-hmm. example, um, this might not be hundred percent correct, but like, you know, a semicolon might've been replaced with the, the ch, which is the letter. And so, um, people would have that and then they would make these different typefaces. Like there was, um, U times, which was like a hack of times new Roman with these kinds of character encodings in it. And, um, you know, if you had those fonts, you would be able to see the correct character. But when I look at them on my machine and I didn't have that character encoding, um, it just looks weird. It's like the letters are missing. They're replaced with um, punctuation marks. Mm. So that's kind of one example of, you know, technology being rooted in in Western and in English um, cultures because it wasn't as widespread um, earlier on. Um, so, so yeah, so people were choosing to speak in English perhaps instead of their native tongue because it was easier to do so consistently. Yeah, I think, yeah, I find that interesting, even teaching like the fundamentals of design. I'm like so much of this, even down to like the very basic, you know, colors, like that's so the color colors are going to be so different in a different country um, in a different context, in a different culture. Um, and so the way that I'm teaching and I'm like having to explain that it's only, uh, you know, one view of us understanding that as a context. And so if, for example, two colors were paired together in a different country, it might have an entirely different kind of like feeling or, or emotion that comes from it than here. Um, but yeah, I, when thinking about designing a website, I guess that part almost stresses me out is thinking about how different things could be interpreted in a different country differently. And if you're trying to design a website that is for everyone, for example, um, it it feels like an impossible feat a bit. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it is an impossible feat because, you know, nothing is ever going to be uh, the ideal solution for everybody. Right. So it's interesting too about accessibility. Like I think it's also common right now to have um, like controls on a website or having like there's different plugins that you can add where mm. people might opt for dark mode versus light mode or increase the the type size or even change the font. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting too. I wonder if going forward, web design will be always um, available to be edited and manipulated. Um, and you're sort of thinking about it as a framework of communication instead. Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of everything. Um, yeah, this was great. Thank you so much for re-recording.
Yeah, thank you for your time. And I appreciate it. Um, yeah, and it was just a lot less stressful without my dog <laughs> in the background. So I'm glad it worked out today. This episode of Design is Not Neutral was recorded in September of 2022. If you liked this episode and want to hear more from us, please check us out on Instagram, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you.